We are back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9. Remember, we have brought the ark to a safe place. They have disembarked, if you'll forgive that pun. They have come out of the ark. They have built an altar to the Lord, and then they have sacrificed to his goodness and grace for bringing them through the floodwaters. And I asked you last week, what altar is there in your life? Is there an altar that celebrates God's goodness? We have a new job, a new job, new land. We have new life coming into the world in just a few weeks. We have so much to celebrate. Have we offered God thanks for all of the things that he has done? I may joke about being old because I am, and that's okay. You know why? I never thought I would get this far in life. When you're 20, you never believe you're going to make it to 60. And when you're 60, you sure don't believe you're going to make it to 90. And I'll do that when I actually do get there. Today we are in Genesis chapter 9. You know, after the flood, man needed a brand new start. He needed a new start, and for that new start, he needed new rules for a new world. Many times when people come to faith in Christ, they become Christians for the first time. They ask the question, how do I live? What do I do now? How do I change my life so that I honor the God who has saved me? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what happened in the life of Noah and his family when they came out of the ark and the world was brand new. Everything that was, was washed away. All of the rem all the remnants of the old world were gone. And basically what he had was a brand new land, new everything. So God was going to give them rules to live by in this new land. Now these rules took the form of three realities. Three realities that we face in our own lives. You're going to a new piece of land. That's a brand new start. And when you get there, how do you live in that new land? Sometimes you have a new child. How do you change your life so that you are the very best parent for that child? What becomes your priority when you do that? We find it right here in Genesis chapter 9. First thing I want you to see is this, Genesis 9.1. There's a new way of life to go on after that moment. It says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That should sound vaguely familiar to you. We have been going on Genesis since Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.29, God gives this same command to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth. Fill the earth with your presence. Now that they have come through the flood, there are only these eight people left in the entire world that's been shattered by the flood and the tectonic plates and all that stuff. He says it to them again, I bless you, and I tell you, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But then he changes things. I want you to pay attention to this. Remember, before the flood, man pretty much was a vegetarian. There was a peace between men and animals because that's how God instituted it in the Garden of Eden. It says in verse 2, The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth and every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you as I gave the green plants. I have given you everything. So as God gave Adam and Eve all the garden plants, to live on, to eat, to, to sustain them. Plus they had the, the tree of, of life. Okay, now he's going to give every living thing as food. Remember, on the ark you had two of every unclean creature. 
things that were considered unclean, the Jews would understand that because it was all part of their dietary standard. But there were seven pairs of every clean thing. And I told you at that point, some would be for food, some would be for sacrifice. Well, they've already sacrificed to God for his goodness. Now we see a different stage. Look what it says in verse 2. The fear and terror of you. Fear is the word for respect. We say fear God, meaning respect God. Hold God in awe because of his power and authority and majesty. But the word terror is the word to quake, to run away from, to be scared of. See, we are not meant to be scared of God. We are meant to honor God, to hold him up, to hold him in that righteous fear. But this terror is what animals feel when they see us. After the flood, men were going to eat animals. Animals would learn to fear man. To this day, there are certain animals, wild creatures, that just do not like human beings. We've talked this morning about some of the encounters we have with, you know, 10-foot snakes. Oh, by the way, if you ever see a 10-foot snake, please run quickly the other way. We talked about bobcats and, and coyotes and other wild creatures that do not like men. Why? Because the fear and terror of every living creature will be on them because of you. Because now you have authority. Now you are the masters of the earth. With all the trees gone and with the ground pretty much ready now for cultivation, man became a meat eater. And that's where it all started. Now, man and nature were changed forever. Their relationship was changed. It changed when they left the Garden of Eden, and now it has changed after the flood. So understand, things are different now than they were before. That's why we can't really imagine the world before the flood. It didn't look like this. It didn't look like it is today. So he goes on, he says, I place them all under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you. As I gave you green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. If you've ever had a blood transfusion, you owe your life to this verse. Did you know that? Before the days when men understood how body chemistry worked, people did surgery. They would go do it do a work on a, on a dead body or on a wounded body. And that same doctor, without washing his hands, would go over and deliver a baby or vice versa. They had no idea that there was something about the blood that was special, something about the blood that was righteous. Remember, the Jews had a very strict code that anything you shoot had to be bled out before you could use it to eat it. I lived in Montana. You would go down during hunting season and there were, be there were deer hanging in the trees. There were deer hanging in the garages. Why? Because you got to bleed it out. You got to get the blood out of it. It begins here. One time they noticed all these mortalities in a hospital. And there was a man who was a doctor and he said, wait a minute. Why are so many people dying here? And then he read this verse in Sunday school. He read it in church. It said, oh my God, life is in the blood. From that day on, he instituted things like scrubbing up before surgery, scrubbing up before delivery. He began to realize there was something about the blood that was unique. And he got it all from God's word. I told you, everything in here has a meaning, has a purpose. It's special. So he says this, so I will require the life of every animal and every man from your life and from your blood. 
so you don't eat things with blood in it, because I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and for your blood. I will require the life of every man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God has made man in his image. Okay, we're going back to this now. What does it mean to say that man will judge man for the, for the acts of murder and for taking human life? Very simple. This is where civil authority begins. When someone commits the crime of murder, he is judged by God, yes, in the life to come. But he will be judged by man in this life, and God gave that authority to men. You see, this is a new world. There will be a new set of laws to control the activities of men, to curtail the activities of men. You see, because only God, and I, I like the way it says, man resembles God in this, that he is a moral being, judging of right and wrong, endowed with reason and will, and capable of holding and exercising those rights. That was in a, a statement I, I read this week when I was studying. And basically it's this, God gave us the authority, the ability to realize what men have done, to make those decisions, to know right from wrong. And so God says, oh, you want, you want me to judge? Now it's your turn to judge. If a man takes another man's life, he will by man be judged. And God will take care of what happens after death. So it's very interesting, this new way of life, this new birth of civil authority, this new birth of being judged by other men for your activities. Remember, if we looked back in the earlier chapters of Genesis, there were men who did things which were not right. But in those days, they believed that God would be the judge. Now, man is being given the right to judge, the authority. So there's a new way of life on the earth. When you become a Christian, you have a new life. You have new responsibilities. You have a new way of doing things. You can't look at people who are out in this culture, look at people that you grow up with and say, okay, they do this so I can do this. Not necessarily. God is holding you to a different standard because he has given you knowledge that most men in society lack. Most men know what's right and what's wrong. They choose not to listen to that voice. You know who I'm talking about, right? You know these people. They're our brothers, our sisters, our friends. We grew up with them, went to school with them. They had their own way of doing things and what they were going to do, they were going to do. But God says, no, no, you're going to have to be morally responsible for what happens in your society. So this new world is going to have consequences for actions. Second thing I want you to see is this, Genesis 9-7. There is a new symbol of God's promised man. In the past, God spoke, men believed, and they acted according to that belief. But now since the flood, now since everything's been wiped out, we're starting with eight people. He wants people, all people left on the earth all eight of them, to know what is right and wrong. He says this, But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God, now notice that verse, please, because you're going to need that in the next couple chapters. God has said, multiply, spread out over the earth. Now remember now, the Pangean continent, that one place of land has been fractured by the tectonic stress of the uh, fountains of the deep exploding up. So now lands are starting to move apart. They're not drifting in the way that we think of drift, but the land is beginning to move and to separate into the place that we have today. 
So he says, multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am confirming my covenant with you. So God is telling them, I'm making a promise to you. I'm making a promise to you. And to your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and wild stack on the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I confirm my covenant with you that I will never again wipe out every creature by the waters of the flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. He did not say there will not be a flood because we have seen horrible floods just in this country in the last few years, and I've seen some in other countries that are really, really bad. I mean, whole towns, whole areas of a country wiped out by flood. He said, there will not be a flood to destroy the earth. So I heard a, I heard a atheist talking on the radio, and he said, you see, there are still floods, so God's word can't be true. And I'm like, wait a second. There's nothing wrong with God's word. It says, I won't destroy the entire world. He didn't say he wouldn't let a flood destroy an area of the world. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow. Please pay attention to those two words. There's two meanings to it, and I'm going to explain them to you. And you're going to need it if you ever want to understand the book of Revelations. Okay, I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. Okay, specifically, there's never going to be a global flood that will destroy all life. Never again. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the everlasting covenant. Do you see these words he's using? Everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have confirmed between me and every creature on the earth. What word do you hear again and again and again? Covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a two-way agreement that people make that they are going to do both ways. Now it's interesting, later God will make a covenant with Abraham that is unique. He swears that he will give Abraham generations upon generations that will bless the entire world. But you have to realize something about Abraham's covenant. When Abraham's covenant was made, Abraham was asleep. It was a single one-way covenant. God made the promise with himself that Abraham would prosper and be all of these things. Here, there's a two-way agreement. He tells Noah, and Noah is witness to this fact that he's making a covenant never to destroy the world again. Why did I say know the word bow? The word bow is the same word as the word covenant. Now, if I say there's a bow in the sky, what do you think? You're thinking a rainbow, right? Now, before the flood, we believe there was a vapor canopy that covered the entire world that filtered out the solar radiation and filtered out the harmful effects of sunlight, and it allowed a softer, gentler light to light the world. It was enough for plants to grow and things to go. But this word covenant, this word bow, means that something has happened to that vapor canopy. 
That vapor canopy turned into water. It fell on the earth for 40 days, 40 nights. It joined with the fountains of the deep that came up. And that's what, cre- that's what made the great flood. That vapor canopy is now gone, which means when the sunlight comes directly onto the earth through the clouds, we see the refraction of water particles. Yes, I went to school. I know it's amazing. They see the refraction of, of light through the vapor canopy, through the, through the water. And that gives us our rainbow. So the rainbow did not exist during the days of the vapor canopy. It existed after the flood as a promise that would be for all people. Now, in the book of Revelation, when the four horsemen ride, does anybody remember what the rider on the white horse holds in his hand? He holds a bow. Many people assume that's a bow of war or a war bow or a weapon, but it's not. It's a covenant. In fact, later it says that he will make a covenant with the people. See, what happens is the Antichrist comes holding in his hand a bow or a covenant or some sort of global promise that he's going to use to unite the world after the church has been removed. And we see it right here. God says, yeah, I'm going to put a bow in the sky. And this bow will be my covenant with you. The Antichrist, the word Antichrist, by the way, doesn't just mean against Christ. It means another Christ, false Christ. So as, as God put a bow in the heavens to remind men of his covenant, this Antichrist, this false Christ, will bring a false promise, a false covenant to divert men's attention away from God's promise to these lies that he will bring to the earth. If you're going to do Revelation, you need to know that this bow shows up again, not in the first book, but in the last book of the Bible. Fascinating, fascinating stuff that God gives us all these little clues all the way along as to what's actually happening. So he places his covenant in the sky. Then now that the vapor canopy is gone, now that the light comes through and it streams through the water particles and we see this wonderful, beautiful rainbow, that reminds us that the earth will never again be wiped out by water. But we know that later, the New Testament tells us, yes, we will not end by water, but by fire. And that fire is detailed extensively in the book of Revelation. If you guys really want to spend a a fun, fun fun-filled couple months You can go back in our podcast and listen to the entire book of Revelation. And if you live through it, you have my praise. Because that was a long, it was a long series, wasn't it, people? It was a long series. So God keeps talking about this everlasting covenant, this sign of the covenant, this bow in the clouds. God wants us to know that to this day, that rainbow still is a promise that the world will not be destroyed by water. We don't know what happens after we're gone, because that is the book of Revelation. It's a little bit hanky. But we're going to find out as we go. Okay, so what's happening? These rules for the new world. It's a new way of life. Man now has authority. Animals now fear men. Men are now carnivores and omnivores because they haven't got much to work with right now. Then we come to the end. There's this new symbol, this covenant that God makes with men so that men now don't have to fear God. No matter what happens, no matter what the storms are like, what the tornadoes are like, what the hurricanes are like. Whether, you're, whether your storm is cancer or it's, it's retinitis pigmentosa or whether your, your covenant is some sort of intestinal problem or whatever, 
you can know one thing. God is always there. That's his eternal, everlasting covenant. How did he seal it? Not with a bow in the sky. Every believer on earth today is sealed with the Holy Spirit. You can't see the mark on my head. I can't see the mark on your head. But God sees who are his people. He sees the mark and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And believe me, Satan can see it too. See, Satan can bother Christians. He can't overwhelm them or destroy them because that is not within his power because the Holy Spirit is here. Amen. No matter what you are going through today, no matter what crisis, no matter what struggle, God's seal is still on you. You still have this everlasting covenant that Jesus Christ brings to you when he puts the Holy Spirit in you. That's why this is so amazing. That's why these are the days of Noah. The last thing I want you to see is this. Yes, it's a new way of life. Yes, it's a new symbol of this promise. But an old enemy remains in the new world. Can anybody name the oldest enemy of man that is now here in the new world? It is the Greek word hubris, pride, rebellion, arrogance. The thing that made Cain kill Abel was pride and arrogance. And here it reinserts itself in this brand new world. Now there's a little time lag here, so don't get caught up. This didn't happen the next day. But God shows him this eternal covenant, and he goes on, Genesis 9, 18. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, not Kenan. We talked about Kenan a couple weeks ago. This is Canaan, whose people would be the Canaanites, the dire enemy of Israel. His son, so Ham has his child, and that child's name is Canaan. There were three of Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Interestingly, about a year ago, scientists, anthropologists released a world-shaking statement. I mean, people were messed up when they released this statement. You can go back and look at it. It's, all the, it's in all the newspapers. They said that there was some kind of disaster that wiped out everyone except a very small group of people somewhere in the Middle East. Duh, we already knew that. Hello, all you had to do was read Genesis and you would understand what happened in the world. But the scientists said, this is in the news, secular news, not Christian news, that there was everybody was wiped out except for this little tiny group. Now, they had a slightly larger number in mind. They were saying there were like 30,000 people left on the entire earth. But I'm thinking there were probably only eight. So there we go. So they said that this happened. This small group of people gave birth to everybody. And they explained how a tiny group of people could populate the entire world. And they did it so they could explain things that they've seen in, in, in the populations of the earth. My thing is this. The Bible's been saying this for 3,500 years. I mean, remember, on Mount Sinai, Moses is getting all of this from the mouth of God as to what actually happened. He wrote it down. The people had it for 3,500 years. We already knew where it all came from. But it says right here that from these men, the whole earth was populated. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. Now, I read about this a little bit, and I, I'm still not 100% sure because I, I am not a farmer. I, I have done some farming, but I'm not a farmer. And they said that the soil... After the flood, 
would have been much different than the soil before. Now, y'all know that the Nile River Valley is called the cradle of life because every year on cue, the Nile River floods extensively, moving black silt and soil out to the entire land, replenishing everything so that everything that's planted there is very fertile and produces a lot of crops, right? That's why, that's why Egypt in the middle of the desert gets all of this wonderful soil because it overflows every year. So he planted a vineyard to raise grapes. What were grapes used for before the flood? We don't know. But he somehow gets these grapes and some of them sit around and they ferment. And it says this, it's so bad. He drank some of the wine, became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. I mean, yeah. Okay. So he's been out there working. This may have been years after the flood, by the way, because it takes a long time to get the soil ready, plant it, let it grow, get it old enough to produce a crop and then be able to take that crop and, and turn it into fermented wine. So we don't know if it was a couple years, three years, four years, whatever. So it's been doing this. So he got a little hammered. He went back in his tent. He was feeling the, the rush of all that smoke. And then he went ahead and took his clothes off and lay down. Nothing weird in and of that itself because you know that's these were old days so they didn't have a washing machine you know throw your clothes in the washer and put on new clothes you only had one outfit so he drank some of the wine became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent ham and it says it again the father of canaan so we don't know what part his son played in any of this we don't know if the child was one year old two years old ten years old we don't we just don't know so Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Stop right there. There is no indication here as to what he said. But the indication is that what he said was said in the wrong spirit. The sin of Ham was that he mocked his father for being drunk. Hey, the old man's in the tent and he's hammered. You know, he's so hammered he threw his clothes off. I mean, I, I can see him doing this, you know. But he didn't do it like, oh, my gosh, you know, dad got a little tipsy and he kind of threw his robe off. Let's go get the old man covered up before somebody sees him. There was no concern for dad. He was making fun of him. He was mocking him. He was bringing him down to the level. Remember, the father was the head of the family. He had he deserved respect and he deserved admiration. And now Ham wanted to take that place. Anyone notice something interesting about Ham? He's the firstborn, right? You ever notice in the Bible, the firstborn doesn't usually do very well? Anybody ever notice that? You have all of these firstborn sons who get replaced by the secondborn son. Start tracking your genealogies. Firstborn sons never do very good. And we don't know why, except that in, in the culture of this day, the firstborn son was considered to be God. He was considered to be the salvation of the family. Carry on the family name. He would be the one they would lean on. You would be the one to work and support your parents in their old age. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? But the firstborn son usually is an heir do well. I don't know why, but it just sort of works out that way. The prodigal son, right? Older son stays home and grumbles a lot. Younger son goes out, is stupid, comes home, and what happens? gets restored. But the older son is always grumbling and griping because he figured he deserved more. Hmm. Let's think about pride here. So Ham comes out there and he says, hey, the old man's hammered. Let's go, let's, let's go embarrass him. Let's go, let's go razz him. 
Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both of their shoulders, and they walked backwards. They covered their father's nakedness. Their faces turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Wow. Then Noah woke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him. My son that I love went out and embarrassed me and told everybody what I had done. He, he, he made me a laughing stock. He brought me down in their eyes. That's terrible. That's a terrible thing to do. And he was rightfully upset. He said, Canaan will be cursed. He will be the lowest of the slaves to his brothers. He also said, praise the Lord, the God of Shem. Canaan will be his slave, meaning he will be under him. He will be less than him. It doesn't literally mean a slave servant. It just means he will be beneath him under his authority. Canaan will be a slave. Now, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah's life lasted 950 years and then he died. I like the way that last line goes. In the Bible, it just says they died. It never says that the nations wept. It never says that everybody was distraught. It never says anything about the fact other than that they died. So this death was a very natural part of the world. It was a very natural part of their existence. But the thing that's interesting is, how did he live? He lived 950 years, served God. 950 years. That's what's, that's what's really put forward. That's the thing that's accentuated. He was God's servant. Yes, he died. But everything was about, not his death, but his life. Have you ever wondered what people will say about you when you're gone? I, I've decided I'm, I'm going to do a video about myself so that I know exactly what's going to get said at my funeral. And I'm going to sound really good in that video. I'm going to put forward all the really good things I did and, have those comments by everybody, you know, so that when I'm gone, nobody can cheese me up when I'm up there, you know. But the thing is, I want people to know I had a wonderful life, not because I was wonderful, but because God is wonderful. Noah didn't live 950 years because he was perfect. We just saw he wasn't. But those 950 years were God's gift because he looked to God for life. He looked to God for everything he had done. See, it's interesting Galatians 6.1 would have been very insightful to Ham back in the day. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, like drunkenness, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What did Ham not have? No grace, no mercy, no concern for his father or his father's weakness, no concern for the fact that if God, if Noah had not listened to God's commands, he would be dead right now. He was only alive because God spoke to his father and through his father saved all eight of them plus all the animals of the earth. There was no respect and no love in there. He was simply mocking a man who was in authority and trying to bring him down. We all know people like that in our families, don't we? We always know that person who's trying to tear others down to build themselves up. What we should be is we should be the opposite. We should be the one who build people up, not tear them down. You see, the sin of the old world that persisted was pride, arrogance, rebellion against authority. The very thing that moved Cain to kill Abel moved Ham to try to destroy his father, but ultimately it led to his destruction. Now remember, this is actually written on Mount Sinai by Moses, where? 
on the way to the promised land. Who lived in the promised land, by the way? Anybody remember? The Canaanites. The Canaanites were the enemy of Israel because God, all the way back here at the start, has shown his favor for those who were faithful and not to those who were disrespectful and proud and malicious. So basically, that, 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 that anonymity, it existed from this day forward. And later, Israel would walk full into it when they took the Canaanite lands. Interesting thing about the Canaanites, they were among the most perverse and corrupted people of that time when Israel went in. Do you know why God said, wipe them out completely? Because of the way they lived, their rebellion against God was so extreme that these were the people who created the god Molech. And Molech was a great, fat, slobbering god of bronze and brass. And in his lap, he held a, brand, a, bra, a brass bowl, and they would heat the fires under it until it was red hot. And then the women would throw in their babies as a sacrifice. That's how sick, how perverted, how twisted the Canaanite people were. And it begins with the arrogance of Ham. It begins here with the father of Canaan. So I say this, as we begin to draw toward the end of our study in the book of Genesis, we do have a new way of life in Christ, a life of grace and mercy, of forgiveness, of being able to bear one another's burdens, restore each other in love. And in that walk with God, there is no room for pride or arrogance or selfishness or a desire to get ahead of somebody else or being jealous of someone else. Jealousy caused Cain to kill Abel. Resentment caused the son to turn against his father and it ultimately destroyed his lineage. The Bible is important because it tells us the mistakes of the past and how we can avoid those mistakes. This is not just something you read in church because it has no bearing. Just like with the bow, if you don't know the bow in Genesis, you'll never recognize the bow of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. So important. The New Testament and the Old Testament are always tied together. You've got to keep them that way. You've got to go from one to the other to see how they affect each other. I encourage everybody, get a really good study Bible and make it your purpose in life to understand not just the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but every chapter of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, although that one is wicked hard to read, and Deuteronomy and to go forward. You have to know them because this Old Testament sets the stage for the coming of Jesus. And everything, you know, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book. He's not quoting the Psalms. He's quoting Deuteronomy, the recap of the life of the people of Israel. Know it, you guys. Know it every day because it will help you avoid the sin of Ham and the sin that infected Canaan. You got kids coming into your life? This is how you raise them. This is what you teach them from word one. God's word is true. As long as the rainbow's in the sky, he will not wipe out the world by water, but he will wipe it out by fire. And that's detailed in the book of Revelation. Let's pray.